0: What the if is brought to you by listeners like you, thanks to our Patreon members, patreon.com slash what the if. Go there now and find out how you can become a member and get all kinds of cool rewards. And thank you for supporting our mission for science education and science fun. Welcome to what? The if Leaf Blower. And ancient astronomy edition.
1: Yeah, the role of lawn maintenance in ancient astronomy <laughs> is generally underappreciated, I think. Um, I but think like, if you so. go to if you go to Stonehenge, it's just a big lawn with some rocks on it. Right, but really um, well maintained. Yeah, it's a really nice lawn.
0: No leaves. You won't find mm-hmm. any stray leaves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Actually, you probably you may find a few. Um, uh what we are finding the the, the leaf blower reference is, is simply because uh, it's summer it's summer in the city, hot time summer in the city in uh, New York City uh, all of us have uh, currently have leaf blowers actually and as well as our, our um, distinguished guest, who I'll bring in in a moment, we all have leaf blowers going on uh, outside. So lawns are being maintained across the United States today because that's just the season. And uh, my theory is that there is a central command that knows uh, when podcasts are being recorded and the leaf blowers are dispatched mm. post haste uh, to, to find out what's going on. Gabby, how are you? How are the lawns at Rockefeller University being maintained this morning?
2: Good. I will say they are being maintained with verve from the number of leaf blowers I have heard going off around me. Uh, but so far today has been a day of uh, technical difficulties, etc. Uh, oh, yeah. So apologies if my audio sounds a bit crunchier than usual. I don't have the nice mic because uh, my cable decided to snap off in the nice mic. Oh.
0: Yeah, you know, me. and it, it, it's it's uh, these are excellent mics, by the way. A shout out to the Shore Corporation <laughs> for their... their century-long, you know, history of making mics. But uh, one thing about these mics, the thing about USB is, I don't know what's with audio companies using the little tiny, tiny, like, and everyone who's listening, I know you know what I'm talking about, those cables with the most ridiculously tiny connector at the very end. That's what you plug into the microphone, and they always something bad always happens. So,
2: I just wish they switched to that. USB-C. I don't have any more of, like, those cables. That was the last one I had, and it's permanently right. stuck in the microphone. <laughs> um, oh, my god! So yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we do have a lot of smart people, and I'm sure we have some electrical engineers or audio engineers in our audience who could explain to us why. I bet there is something about mm-hmm. that super... Because it's USB-C. It's a regular USB-C connector at the other end of the microphone, so it goes into the computer. There's some reason, must be something about audio that... Uh, Anyway, without getting too far off into that, uh, into that land, maybe that'll be an if that'll be an if mm-hmm. what the, if... So an if. what the if all connectors what if audio here... design
1: was sensible?
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and, uh, so that's Gabby Panicia, virologist at Rockefeller University here, uh, every week helping us understand the imaginary world. Um, and that other wonderful uh, voice, the sonorous tones, of, are of Matt Stanley, uh, professor, um, his, historian of science at mm-hmm. New York University. Is that correct? Yes. How are that's things right. there? How are the... Uh, you don't have so much... Uh, I suppose in, in, out in Washington
1: Square, they may be leaf blowing. Gen- generally uh, yeah, right there on right. the sidewalk. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Our, yeah, our campus lawn is like a six by six patch of... Decaying right. grass. So That's, it right. Really count. That's right. It's a gif. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. But how long the hell
0: i the longest. Well, Matt, I'm going to allow you, because I believe he's a, a good friend of yours, I'm going to allow you to introduce our awesome guest this week. I'm super psyched to get to our if of the week.
1: Yeah. So, so I'm but... very excited to have, as you say, an old friend of mine, uh, Gerardo Aldana, who's a professor at UC Santa Barbara, professor of Chicano Studies. Um, and uh, a a keeper of many adventures, I would say. I'd imagine we'll only get to a small fraction of of your tales of um, hiking through archeological sites and and digging up exciting things. Um, uh, But he's here with us today because he has written a a very exciting new book called Calculating Brilliance, an Intellectual History of Mayan Astronomy at Chichen Itza. Um, uh, Gerardo, welcome.
3: Thanks so much, Matt. Um, it is great connecting with you again. Uh, it's been a long time since we were grad students together.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, similar um, trajectories in the end, right? Doing, yeah, that's right. This for history of science—like, where does it fit into the academy? Where does it fit into our greater world? So, so thanks so much for the invitation.
1: Yeah, very excited to have you here.
0: And Harada, you come with a, a pretty awesome if that we have contrived uh, based on your book. Again, the title, by the way, for our listeners, uh, Calculating Brilliance, An Intellectual History of Mayan Astronomy at Chichen Itza. And you'll help us understand what is Chichen Itza. But uh, our if is um, what we, we sort of thought about. What could we do? And we asked. It was kind of imagining uh, a fanciful s- scenario as we like to do. Actually, Matt, uh, for our listeners who just stumbled in, Mm-hmm. help help them understand before i i'm I'll about i will I am about to introduce our if with all the grand fanfare that comes with such a ceremonial act, but before we do that what, what's going on?
1: Oh, what's well, What we're about to <laughs> do happening? is um, this is there? our this is our shtick, right? Uh, yeah. We <laughs> change something about the world. Um, so something that sometimes that's something fundamental. What if there is no gravity? Um, sometimes it's what if uh, something a little more personal. What if humans had tails? Um, and sometimes we mess with history a little bit. What if things had happened differently in the past? Uh, and I think that's probably the the flavor we're on today. Um, What if uh, the history of the Americas uh, had gone a little bit differently um, and we were doing a slightly different kind of science today? All right. And so we ask, what the if
0: Mayan astronomy were still practiced in the same way today? Pretty awesome. What function we have some follow-on thoughts. What yeah. function might that play? And here's my favorite part: How could it be preserved? This goes perfectly with the music. How could it be preserved <laughs> within post-Copernican cosmologies? So we get a little got a little academic sounding, but I think, but but the actual implications of what we just said there is is uh, quite powerful. So if we begin we begin with the sort of just the entry here. Gerardo, what if Mayan astronomy were still practiced in the same way today? And I think what we mean is in our, in the, let's say, in our American society today. So we woke up, um, uh, we woke up, we turned on the news. Let's say this: we turn on the news. Let's say we watch our normal Good Morning America, and it's Good Morning
1: in America. Yeah, yeah. Good
0: morning, America. <laughs> That's wonderful. And uh, what what do we see? What are they talking about, Gerardo?
3: Frankly, I think, um, and if I could just back up for a second, I think yeah. one of the things I love about this is that it's, it's in line with this, <clears throat> excuse me, with this tradition um, that, that I find so exciting these days. It's kind of like alternative historical futures, right? Let's right, go back. Right. Let's just tweak something. And let's imagine what things would... Remember. I mean, this to some degree is like, it's like Black Panther, right? It's like, it's huge in terms oh. of the media mm-hmm. these days. Mm-hmm. How yeah. do you understand alternate worlds that could have occurred if something were... Different? So I love this setup. Great, um, Great. If, we, yeah. if we were to say, yeah, my astronomy is still being practiced, there's all kinds of backstories we'd have to unpack first. But let's just jump into your example. Mm. I would say that 90% of it would be climate science, right? They would ah. basically... Mm. If we we're thinking about... Mayan astronomy. And this has been one of my real kind of, um, it's been the key driver in in my study over the years. Like, what does it mean to actually care about science? What is science in any given society? Um, Is it based on culture? Is it just something that we all kind of stumble along and discover? And so whoever discovers it first is the winner. Like, how do you understand who gets to do science and, and what it should be? Right. Um, and so it, this has been one of my driving questions. And I think when you look at it from a, a Mayan perspective, which is kind of what I hope to approximate, we're not talking about this this Judeo-Christian conscribed cosmology, right? We're not talking about um, the separation of, of nature and spirituality. We're not talking about hierarchical access to rationality. We're talking about a very different, and I would say messier universe Mm. so that science is not driven in as kind of like Einstein's language of God or Galileo's language of God now revealed to us. Science is a language that humans use in order to interact with each other and the environment. But the environment has all of its own languages, too. So it's no longer hierarchical. Right. So if we're Mm. we're approaching something Mm. like climate change, then that means our discourse with the environment is messed up. And we've got to find the techniques, the tools, the science that allows us to correct that. Um, would it have astronomy in it? Yes. Uh, that would be one part of it. But that's kind of the, the underlying framework. It's about discourse with nature, not about domination and control over nature.
0: So do you mean, in other words, if, if uh, let's say there's a story, the weather comes on, right, as it does on Good Morning Mesoamerica, Um which, by the way, that's a show I would subscribe to. I would definitely oh, sure. subscribe to Good Morning Mesoamerica. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, how would they, like, when you when you say that, that climate, you say, I think you said, you're saying climate, not climate change, or do you, what, what exactly, how would they be interpreting the weather? What would they be saying about what's going on? And uh, and And should we, would they be telling us we need to do something about it? Do we need to go... I don't know. Do we, do we need to make more sacrifices? What's what's happening?
3: So a couple of good key points there. I love that you pulled up sacrifices because that's um, one of those gigantic tropes that always gets pulled out. <laughs> it gets pulled out for a <laughs> right. for book. Right, everything. Right, yeah. right, right, right. We know that every ancient society performs some kind of human sacrifice, but it's always the Maya or the Aztecs who get like, hey, that's what they're all about. Right. right. Um, Although, let's
0: the, be clear. In my defense, I didn't say human sacrifice. <laughs> so,
3: <laughs> excellent point. Yes. Okay. Right. 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 It gets us to the key kind of text here, which is um, we have a little bit uh, of the answer to that question in the historical record. There's yeah. the Dresden Codex, um, which is this document from probably the 12th century, but it gets recopied and recopied. And the version that we have is probably 14th century. Um, and it was housed in the Dresden library, which is why it gets that name, but it comes from Yucatan and it's the one that's like kind of at the core of this book that I've just written because it has within it, the Venus table. Um, and the Venus table is this incredible device. Um, folks have been working on it since the end of the 19th century. So 1894 and Ernst Fürstmann comes up with this way of reading the Venus astronomy in this text. And, and that's what drives so much of the interpretation of Maya culture ever since then, because people weren't able to read the hieroglyphic text, but they were able to see the numbers in the calendars. And so they said, oh, it must all be the same. It must all be astronomy. Uh-huh. So they start off with this notion of, hey, OK, look at, look at Venus astronomy in the Dresden Codex. But they ignore the rest of the Dresden Codex. There's 70 some pages in the Dresden Codex. Uh-huh. And most of these pages are full of rituals, activities, engaging chalk. And chalk is what they call the rain god, right? Chalk Ah. is storms, is rain. So, so much of that document is really about interacting with weather. Um, And and it's it's not just, okay, wait for the rains to come. It's not the astronomy where you say, okay, Sirius shows up, so now this is the heliacal rise, and so trigger planting. Um, It's more, again, this engagement with, okay, how do we discourse with nature? If this were to happen, that suggests this other stuff might happen. And if this other stuff happens, we read these signals collectively to suggest that that uh, that's how we respond. And it doesn't.
1: I was going to say. So that's so the weather report might not be the right thing right so because the wh- when you say weather report that implies that weather is separate from say the astronomy report or the science news right so yeah. what do we what do we call that segment of the news where those sorts of things get described
3: that's a brilliant question i don't know the, <laughs> i think we've got a little bit too far down the rabbit hole at this point um, <laughs> because you, you still have specialists right you still have some folks okay. who are mm-hmm. um Priesthoods of Chak of, of rain. You have priesthoods of the stars, of the celestial realm, right? The folks, the Achkins, who would have done, um, who would have kept track of Venus uh, and its representations. Um, you still have the folks who are the agricultural specialists, who, with, I mean, getting into the agriculture, I think that's where you find the real science. So, so there's some specialists that you still have all these folks who are doing somewhat professionalized work. But it's just the basis, the, the assumptions that they're making about how their work engages nature are radically different from ours. So you could have a weather report, but the weather would be, you know, how are we interacting? Not just, you know, let's look at this biological model and see what it tells us we should be wearing tomorrow. Right. right, right. So ahead. I feel
2: like this presents a lot of interesting questions, which makes me kind of want to back up a little bit, because, you know, based on what I know about fine astronomy, which is not much, Is that I basically knew that they were very, very accurate, much more accurate than we probably would have given them credit for in, you know, Western biases. Um, And it seems like based on what you've said today, that there's a lot of intricate interaction between um, religion and astronomy and nature where it wasn't just, you know, like Western astronomers, where they looked up at the sky and said, okay, this is what's happening separate from what's happening on Earth. It seems like it was more of an interconnected thing. So I'm probably going to ask you to do one of the most difficult things a person has to do as an expert, and give (laughs) maybe some kind of like layman's overview of. So if we're talking about Mayan astronomy, you know what what does that kind of generally look like? What are some of the common threads that tie that together? If it's not just you know looking up at the stars and seeing what's happening.
3: No, I can't thank you enough for that question. I mean, it's one of it's the other side of what I've been focused on forever, right? If you look, so this is a disciplinary issue. If you look at who's been addressing Mayan astronomy for the last hundred and some years, it's been archaeologists and physicists, right? So physicists who are interested in astronomy and they're like, oh my God, there's something really cool happening here. So let me learn enough culture so that I can interpret the astronomy, right? Um, but that means that you come with all of the biases of what science looks like from being trained in the hard sciences in our modern world. And, and that means that accuracy becomes something really important, right? People are like, oh, that's a measure of scientific activity if it's really accurate. And um, I love that you pulled this up because that becomes the trope for people understanding the Dresden Codex Venus table. They do all kinds of mathematical gymnastics to get it to look a certain way because they're focused on accuracy. And one of my key arguments is that that's not the driving force here. That science is is more of, I call it an oracular science. You're trying to create constructions that balance each other in stochastic ways so that you end up with a constrained but random outcome, right? So you could imagine Ooh. Venus is rotating, right? So it's got these cycles. It's got five different ways that it presents itself in the morning and the evening, but it's always a little bit different because the planes of um, you know our orbits are not exactly the same and they're not perfectly circular. Right. So there's always going to be some adjustment. So you, you can say it's on average eight days between last morning visibility in the evening and first morning visibility in the morning. But that's an average, and it's going to be it's going to change from time to time. So if you take that and say, oh, that's a problem with our uh, model, let's fix it, then that's really the focus on accuracy. But if you take an oracular approach and you're saying, Venus is telling us something. Because if it yeah. shows up early, then there's some kind of message there. The day oh. that it shows up on is giving us the character of that message and now you've got this little box that's kind of telling you signs about how to interact with the universe, right? So, so there's that notion of like, how do we work with um, accuracy? And then the long-term perspective is we have to reconsider what we mean by Maya astronomy, right? There's like so many different forms of Maya languages. There's 40-some languages still spoken, right? They've changed over time and wow. by region. Wow. Astron- we have astronomical records that go back to the first and second centuries B.C., there's no way they were practicing the same kind of Mayan astronomy in, um, you know, formative period times as they were in post-classic times. But yeah. we lump them all together, and it becomes very convenient to think that they are. And so that's really mm-hmm. the, one of the driving forces behind this, this book that I've just written, an intellectual history of Mayan astronomy, because we're saying, let's look at these changes over time. And let's look at what the, what the foci were for, like, who was driving interest in what kind of astronomy when and and i argue really that like in, in the first book that i wrote it was very much about this really esoteric language and astronumerology but it was for creating certain kinds of mythological texts in this case we're looking at an interest in this new phenomenon this figure known as quetzalcoatl from mm-hmm. central mexico sorry it is kind of it's connected to the aztecs it starts off toltec it starts <laughs> off <East laughs> Tech. Oh, so, interesting the aztecs in i know that's a bias but, um, but quetzalcoatl shows up in the post early post classic period and it looks like it looks like the, the folks at Chichen Itza have to face a decision who are they going to ally with in these changing times right the changing times i'm talking about we're talking about um, what folks used to refer to as the collapse of Mayan civilization right so around 900 AD there's this huge um, people just leave seem to leave go away from the central Paten, which is the classic maya region
0: Mm.
3: What it really looks like is that folks aren't leaving that area, they're moving to the north. And it looks like that's happening because of trade relations. Trade, oh. in that central reason for the classic Maya period, was driven by river traffic along the Asuma Sinta and then out the rivers of Belize. And so you could come back and forth from southern areas to northern areas through that heartland of the Maya region. But there was a significant drought at that point. And it looks like that drought probably, I mean, drought in in the tropics is not drought in California, right? It doesn't mean that there's no, rain. it means that there's less. Rain. And so it means that the river levels drop. And so if your economy is based on trade along rivers and you can't transport materials along it, it means you've got to get out of it. And so what I'm arguing is that at Chichen Itza, they're facing this problem. Is this drought going to last so that this uh, so that trade is no longer going to occur across the south? If it isn't, they need to ally with folks who are to the north who are going to allow them to go seafaring canoes around the peninsula instead of across the peninsula by river. They need to make that argument for is the drought going to end or not, because then they're going to decide who to ally with accordingly. And it turns out that the folks who want to go the seafaring route are the folks connected to Quetzalcoatl, and so there's this whole arrival of the Feathered Serpent and Kukulkan at Chichen
1: Itza. Oh right. wow. So all of those things are tied together in that kind of oracular science that we're talking about. So that's super interesting, right? So if it's, Let me just because I just, then, just oh, sorry, define yeah, a
0: I'll, define yeah. a word, or when we just when we say oracular science is really just you know, define that word may jump out at people. It took me a little while actually to figure out the context. So it's it's related <laughs> to oracle, I guess, or right. so just mm-hmm. what does that word mean orac oracular science?
3: Absolutely. So it's it's an oracle. So it's it's something in earlier work that I've done. I've tried to define a way. Um, uh, um, I've tried to define a certain kind of oracle, and it is this this constrained. Um, and and but
0: an oracle for those who don't know, an oracle is 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 someone who predicts the future. Is that right?
3: Yeah. Well, so it could be predicting anything, right? So if we go okay. all the way back to what is it like ancient Greek? you can going to help me out. Ancient Greek and mm-hmm. you have the Oracle <laughs> at Delphi, right? So you have right, some yeah, woman right. who is, who's sitting in this cave and and like she's breathing these fumes and then she's telling you stuff about the universe that you can't get at rationally, right? So that's like big picture Oracle. But the notion is that it's, it's, it's recognizing that there are um, different forms of interaction in the universe and you can crack them open by finding the right portal. So the Oracle becomes the portal to a different type of information. Cool. <laughs> if you make the assumption that the universe is not just matter floating around with energy driving it, but that there are personalities involved, then you might find other ways of accessing those personalities. And if you can say, look, let's put together a combination of math, of observation, and of um, natural phenomena, and we know that it's uh, it's gonna happen around this time, but we can't pinpoint it exactly, then you've constructed a stochastic experience. And that stochastic, stochasticity is what gives you the oracular experience.
0: Right. And stochastic, you mean, is sort of a statistical... Yeah, yeah. Just so
3: it's looking not, it. it's, There's an there's there's element of random to us, but it's a bounded randomness.
0: Right, right. Okay, so go ahead, Matt. That was, that was the footnote. No, no, Thank I was going so to say, sorry is,
1: This is very yeah. cool. That, um, so it seems to me, so if we were still practicing Mayan astronomy today, um, it's that our, our professional astronomers aren't just measuring the phases of Venus, as Western professional astronomers might be doing, um, but rather we expect those observations of Venus to be part of a conversation about things like why California is in a drought um, and what immigration across borders might look like and mm. perhaps why there's war in some places of the world and not others and why food prices are going up um, and that all those things have to be discussed together, right? Um then that's So that's super fascinating, right? So if I want to be a scientist, uh, a, a Mayan scientist today, presumably my training looks a little bit different, right? I'm not just taking math classes. Um, what does our, our PhD in oracular science consist of?
3: <laughs> it, to a degree, I think we are kind of practicing it today, right? So I've got some experience working with these folks who do climate science, and they're building these gigantic models where they're saying, okay, how much food production could you get out of, Ukraine. How much food production do you get out of an alternative, which is to create agricultural systems based on oceans? Right. So let's take, excuse me. Let's take our agricultural production off land and move it onto the sea. And and so there's all kinds of variables that you can introduce there that change what the outcome is. That's kind of like an oracle, right? Like you've built this gigantic model with all of these inputs and all of these different variables, and they all interact, and then you push run. And then the, the code kind of does its thing and spits out some numbers, and then you interpret those numbers. I mean, to a degree, I think there's this really nice resonance between what they were trying to do with the Venus Oracle at Chichen Itza and what we're seeing um, in climate science today. I make this, another analogy, which is to um, kind of the stock market. <laughs> so so the last chapter of my book is that they're doing a version of Mayan of astronomy today, too, on Hedge Fund. <laughs> How... <laughs>
2: How granular does Mayan astronomy get, right? So it seems like these questions that they're they're answering with this science are sort of bigger sweeping questions, right? Do we change our trade routes? Um, you know, what does the future of our society look like, as opposed to like, should I play lotto today? So like are, are these like like are your oracular scientists, your Mayan astronomers, you know, using this knowledge to guide society as a whole or is it sort of a little bit more you know customized? Is it small scale? is it like you know don't buy peaches today kind of thing?
3: Your, your question is spot on. Um, so one of the things that I loved about like exploring this side of Mayan astronomy was was to take into account that there's different experiences for different parts of society right Like we often think of especially when we think of popular culture we think of okay Mayan ceremony, so some priest goes to the top of a temple and all the people get, um, gather at the bottom of the stairs and then something dramatic happens. And I, and I think, so what I'm constructing here though, is that there was both a, a kind of a private and a scientific life to Mayan astronomy. And then there was the public life. Hmm. So what this figure was doing, this woman, um, who I call, it's not really her name. It's kind of just a description in Mayan. It says she saw the feathered, um, Quetzal star, um, but, but that's what I call this woman who, I argue, discovers this key factor in plotting out Venus over time. I go back and I say, well, what, was her daily, what was her daily work? Um, it wasn't just looking at Venus and making um, records of it. She had this project, which was just to, to go to this temple. So if you, if you know Chichen Itza, you know that there's like two, maybe three things that everybody knows about Chichen Itza. There's the Temple of the Feathered Serpent, which is the one that you see the serpent coming down the stairway on the equinox. Everybody knows about that. There's the great ball court, which is just this massively huge ball court that's bigger than any other ball court we have. So people are like, what were they actually doing there? Were they playing ball? Or like, what was happening? So there's that. And then there is what they call the observatory or the caracol. Um, And I argue, I'm following these other scholars saying that it's really called the tziknal, which is the Mayan name for this structure. And it's a round structure, and it also has layers to it. So they, like, Eric Thompson said, "It looks like a really bad wedding cake," um,
0: <laughs> and this the is the tower—the tower that rises above the trees.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So that yeah. what you do is you get a view of the entire horizon, which is totally flat in in northern Yucatan, and mm-hmm. so it's a great place to to look at the stars. Mm-hmm. But what I'm arguing is that the, the second level isn't just for going up and viewing. There's also these windows, and we know that they had these really cool um, ceramic incense burners, right? Incensarios. Um, and so what they were, what they were created as is like a bowl where you would put the incense in the bottom, but then there was an effigy on the front. So some deities, entire body would be attached to the front of the sensor and they would create these little, um, paths so that the smoke would come not just straight out of the back of the incense burner, but it would go through the body and come out the hands of these little figures. So they look like they were animated oh,
0: cool. and,
3: and, they, and they sit in these windows. And so the argument is that what this woman is doing on a daily basis is she is making sure that the, the incense burners are in the right windows corresponding to the visibility of Venus. So if you, if you're walking by this building and you see that there's an incense burner and it's got its little hands and, and smoke is burning, and it's in the South wind in the South facing window. Then you know that Venus is in its um, or part of its orbit where it's invisible. We can't see it. It's the eight-day period um, when it passes between us and the sun. But then, if we see it over in the east window, oh, we know that we could possibly see Venus in in the morning sky, right? And then, what they're doing is they're placing the incense burners in the windows in order for the public at large to know where Venus is because they're not one one getting up early enough to be able to see it themselves. Huh. And two, they don't have that, they don't have that beautiful um, View from the top of the um, structure, they're down on the plaza floors, or right. they've got trees obstructing their view. So right. it gives the public a way of knowing where Venus is in its set of visibilities. That's her day-to-day work, and that's the way that folks are able to say, "Hey, I'm not interested in you know what Venus is going to tell me about. Um, oh, I don't know the weather or something. I'm interested in how this is going to affect my daily life." And then you have this whole crew of daily, like more quotidian oracular practitioners who can interpret that for you, right? So like the Hmm. people who read tarot cards or the people who do divinations for you, like on the side, there's going to a whole class of folks who are doing that kind of work based on Venus positions. What I'm suggesting is that we've got to think about the stratification of interpretations of this information across society, not just the really fun stuff where we're looking at, oh, what does it predict about this, that, and the other? Right. So getting back to your question, (laughs) that was a huge digression. (laughs) Getting back to your question, I'm arguing that it wasn't a plan, that it was actually accidental. There was this um, historical accident where the long count calendar, maybe I should back up for a second, because this is really what makes everybody excited about Mayan astronomy.
0: Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. The thing that's different about Mayan astronomy from Aztec astronomy, from Mishtec astronomy, from anything going on in South or North America is that they had a long count calendar. And this calendar was basically Julian day number, but it was calibrated to a different zero date. So all you're doing is you're counting the number of days that have elapsed from some zero date in the distant past. Mm. What that means and what, what what that got everybody excited about, like 20th century um, scholars of all stripes, is that if we could find the correlation between one day in the long count and one day in the Christian calendar, then we know exactly exactly what people are doing when, you know, like Rome is burning or when mm. um, Greece is at it or when, you know, Islam takes over Europe. like all We could do that direct correlation. So people are like, we've got to find this connection. Astronomers said, we've got to find that connection because now we know exactly what they're seeing in the night sky whenever um, we pull up any given date for an event that they have conducted. So, right. So if you, if you have the long count calendar and you have a track to the Gregorian calendar, then you can say, okay, on this day, this ruler was um, um, anointed and, and became um, ruler of their of their town. Well, let's look at what was going on in the night sky on that night. Oh, and it looks yeah. like Venus was in a prime position. So maybe they were correlating that accession to Venus, right? So people have done that for decades. Yeah. But So, so that's what the long-count calendar provides us, that access to a day-to-day correlation. Now, the... The reason nobody likes me, <laughs> just to put it bluntly, Ooh. is that, I argue, is, is that I, I argue that the one that everybody is using is wrong. It's just wrong. And I've argued this for years. And I'm, I'm
0: offended. I'm offended already. I can't believe this. Shots be, fired. Right? Shots fired at the rest
3: it's, of your it's, colleagues. It's too convenient, right? You want to use it. Anyway, um, <laughs> the point is that we have we have this correlation. I don't want to get in. I don't want to get involved in the actual correlation. I want to look at just the dates relative to each other. So I want to just look ah, at, right, the historical record as a historical record, and not worry about how it relates to the sky or how it relates to other civilizations. I want to focus on what it tells us about Mayan um, culture and astronomy. And when you do that, you find that there's this really cool pattern that emerges right around the time that astronomers are watching Venus at Chichen Itza. And so this woman says. Hold on a second. This event is not supposed to happen on this date. Oh. This first morning visibility of Venus is not so supposed to happen on a date one a how because there's too many cosmological um, impacts of that event occurring, and our calendar says it's not supposed to occur for another twenty years. So this is a problem for us wow. on a mathematical sense. But when she tries to figure it out by using historical records and using um, like her observations which is basic astronomy, she realizes that there's a way to correct her observations to the calendar. And it's by this thing called the correction factor, which is what Floyd Lounsbury figured out back in the 1980s, is built into all of the pages of the Dresden Codex Venus Table. Wow. So It's just an accident that she discovers this thing. But it's an accident at the perfect time because it's an accident when everybody's saying, oh, Quetzalcoatl is really important in central Mexico. And Quetzalcoatl is intimately tied to Venus. So you can see that as saying, oh, here I've figured out this great thing about Venus. And there's this interest in connecting to Central Mexico through Venus. That's a reason to change our alliances in line with what the universe is telling us.
0: What I love is if, if to make an analogy to our modern day, it's as if if the uh, Washington Monument in Washington D.C. were an astronomical temple. Um, it would also be what I love. Is everything you're describing is this: if government services and astronomy and oracles and you know uh, mysticism and and agriculture. All these things are mixed. Um, so I can imagine Washington D.C. is not just an administrative center mm-hmm. for our country, but it's also an astronomical and a spiritual center and stuff like that. It's definitely not a spiritual center. I think everyone who grew—I grew up there. Everyone can attest to that. Should it could use a little bit more spirit. But anyway, imagine the Washington Monument is an observatory, and there is a uh, there's a woman whose whose job it is to move the incense burners from the diff- you know to the different windows, so that when people go up the Washington Monument, they can they can get the observations, they can understand where Venus was this morning before they got up. Um, so. Um, Matt, it sounds to me like one thing I'm, I'm getting an understanding of here is something similar to the way European science evolved out of how it kind of on the way to separating itself a bit more from religion. Is that correct? In other words, that they were they it was very mm-hmm. important, regardless of what you think is the root cause of the movements of the objects in the sky. It's still important to be incredibly accurate in your observations obviously you need to know you need to know what's going on and, and who's causing it your your story about who's causing it may change but but that happens yeah her, and, her. and
1: the reason you care about those observations will be a little bit different too mm-hmm. um, so you know one of the things we're talking about here you know, so nowadays if you wanted to know about the grain harvest in the Ukraine you should not ask an astronomer about that. Okay, that would be a Uh, silly thing uh, to do. uh, Um, You do, I think one of the interesting things that Gerardo's pointing out here is that you do talk to climate scientists about that. So climate scientists are willing to bring together their science with kind of Human activity and social activity in a way that, say, astronomers are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really interesting that they've they've sort of taken over that niche. The astronomers have have specialized themselves into obscurity um, in, <laughs> in a strange sort of way these days. Um, right, astronomers that, almost they own, yeah. astronomers look in one direction, and that's up yeah, that's right and that's far away, right? Right. Um, right, right. Uh, So this, I I think, brings up or gets me thinking about one of the the taglines to our initial if, which is, what does Mayan astronomy look like in a post-Copernican world, right? So if we have the Webb Space Telescope and we do understand Newtonian gravity and we've sent a space probe to Venus, um, how do we keep on with oracular Astronomy. I mean, are we still looking for Quetzalcoatl um, in the 21st century?
3: I think that's a great question, and I think it, it's it shifts because I think we can't now bring along um, that that version of Mayan astronomy into our our current context that transparently. Right. I think what mm-hmm. happens is, especially especially with with general relativity, with quantum physics, and the relationship between math. There and physical reality that's being modeled that becomes the, the the fascination point for who were who were the Mayan astronomers in the past, right? So so if we if we step back and we say okay, let's look at what's driving these things. Let's look at, um, at something other than just accuracy. Then that's where you get into the interesting part, right? So absolutely, the the questions are spot on, right? About um, the relationship of accuracy to what we call Western science, right? All the way back to the Greeks, the notion was save the phenomena. You want to get this thing oh. accurately captured. You're not so worried about what it's telling us, even though they have this whole model for how it's telling us. You can see that thread grows all the way to our current day, right? You'll, you'll talk to physicists and they'll say, hey, we've got these extra dimensions that we need in order to explain quantum <laughs> phenomena, but we don't know what those extra dimensions that are doing, but the math works out, right? right. So, yep. So to me, that's the thing that becomes really different. Now, my astronomers, um, in quotes, um, they're not so interested in just making the math work out. They're trying to figure out what are those other forces that allow the math to work out, right? So it's not completely separating the phenomenon from the understanding of them. The philosophy comes along with it. And then you're saying, oh, this is really cool. Like in order for us to go from Newtonian to Einsteinian gravity, what we had to do was we had to complexify our base assumption we could no longer separate space and time. We realize now that there's this more complicated thing, which is a manifold. So then they're saying that you guys are now getting it right. You're getting it that these things are really connected. They're not separable. So let's keep pushing that. And, and you could have all kinds of, I think that would be like a magnum opus to do a Mayan version <laughs> of quantum gravity.
0: Whoa, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, Gabby, do you have a question?
2: No, I mean, in general, I think it's just really neat this sort of fusion of astronomy and, I guess, astrology. Um, uh, because uh-huh, I feel yeah. like most yeah. astronomers, etc., like if I mentioned astrology to any of the cosmologists we've on here, had on here, they would have digitally slapped me. Um, <laughs> so it's really interesting that you get this like interpretation of the wider world through phenomenon. And I'm sure, like you know, with the James Webb telescope, like you could have gone, you could have gone a little bit nuts with that because there's so much for you to look at and, and potentially interpret.
3: But, but I love that too, like the digital slap. That's a great thing. But also um, <laughs> yeah. the notion of what astrology is, right? And I think to some degree, that's the way that I've tried to describe ancient versions of Mayan astronomy is it's not um, it's not this sterile mathematical process. It's really a social science of nature, right? So you're saying these folks are interacting with each other, these entities out there, we're interacting with each other, and we're interacting with them. So this it's this it's this many-body problem that incorporates different kinds of agency. So it's yeah, it's a very different kind of science. It's not um, just stripped down to the most reducible form of any given entity.
0: Mm. Uh, last question, totally just jumping the tracks a bit, but just something I've always wanted to know. So you when you go, you've I so you've, you've done work at Chichen Itza. Do you get, are there times where you get to be there where no one else is there, you know, and you're doing your work and you get a, I don't know, you are you able to have that? Like, I once got to, I, I visited Teotihuacan and I happened to get there extremely early, like before any of the other tourists had arrived. And it was just such a bizarre you know, it was, you know, I have to say it's spiritual experience to stand there in front of the pyramid and being the only one there. You can imagine a bit more what it was like in the past. Or anyway, have you had an experience like that? Is it one, one time yeah, you could so, tell us
3: about? I mean, I've had so I've had a number of experiences in a number of different sites, not mm. Chichen Itza itself. I, mm. there, this is a long backstory. Chichen Itza was an accident for me. I thought when I was going to write this book that it was just going to be about the Venus table. I'm like, there isn't really a, an accessible text on the Venus table. Let's just explain how it happened. And because I took a historical approach, it ended up becoming over four hundred pages, and got me. I'm doing like a history <laughs> history of radiocarbon dating, like related to the Manhattan Project, in chapter three. And I mean, awesome, right? <laughs> but but I will say to get to your point, um, I did have a moment, which was when I went to Cumarca, which is in Guatemala. It's also um, Santa Cruz Quiche. It is the location. Um, that the authors of the Popol Vuh lived in, right? So the Popol Vuh is this, is this mythological text. It's really, it, people sometimes call it the Mayan Bible. It's really not that. Um, it is a mythology that tells the story of the creation of the world to the creation of the first humans to the first members of the gene- genealogy of the ruling class of that city at the time, right? So it's their legitimation story. But it goes all the way back to primordial times. But it is so powerful because it captures so much of like Mayan thought in, in multiple ways, even if it's not a Bible. Um, right. But so what I did was I was able to go back to Kumarka, to the site that's in the highlands um, in, in Guatemala, and read the words of these authors at that site. And that was a truly powerful experience um, wow. to, to be there then. And, and the, the place itself is, is gorgeous. The, the site... It's kind of reconstructed, but not totally reconstructed yet. And this is what's key: local Mayan communities still go up and use that as a ritual space. So I'm sitting here and I'm it's, reading this, I'm reading the Popol and then these folks come up and they've got like um, they've got like lumber on their back. They've got like packs of materials that they're, because they're going to be burning incense and they're going to be performing a ritual at one of the temples there while I'm reading this text. That was just like a next level experience. <laughs>
0: Amazing, 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 uh, Matt. Any, uh, any closing thought? How do you feel now that you've? Uh, did you? W- was Good Morning uh, Mesoamerica helpful to you today? You're going to be able to
1: carry oh, out the yeah, rest you of gotta, your day. You got you to tune in every day. Right. Um, Because it's, you know, it's all it's relevant on all of these different scales. It helps me understand geopolitics better. It helps me understand the phases of Venus, but also sounds like whether I should be buying peaches today. Um, So that's really helpful. Right. Um, And to have all of those bound together in one report, I find very aesthetically satisfying. Um, I mean, that's really nice to not have to split up my experience of the world in that way. Yeah. It's a one-stop shop. One so we stop could do shop. a
3: spin-off podcast on good morning, America, Mesoamerica.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a great, idea. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. And now the Venus report. <laughs> well, we got beans. Um, uh, Gerardo, thank you so much. Thank you for this incredible, incredible um, journey through 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 space and time. Um, uh, for those of you who are Patreon members, um, you are going to get special bonus content. We will be doing our uh, our exclusive um, post show discussion with Gerardo and Gabby and Matt and myself. Um, Usually, uh, you know, ten or fifteen minutes or so uh, extra. Um, those of you who've been listening to Patreon and enjoying those uh, post-show conversations, as I know you are, as we've been hearing from you, um, know what's coming, and you'll be able to get that. Uh, if you're not a member uh, already, be- think about becoming one. Uh, no obligation. You can go to Patreon, p a t r e o n, Patreon.com/slash WhatTheIf, and you can check out our membership program. You can get all kinds of fun things: mugs, um, stickers. Um, some of our, our Patreon members have re- received a sticker recently and told me they put it on the back of their car as a bumper sticker. So they're driving. I don't know if it's, if you're driving behind a car and the car in front of you has a big sticker that says, what the
1: if? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. You might want to steer Claire of that. Right, exactly. So yeah. I, I suppose that's a good safety feature. If you want to keep people away from you, put a big, what the if sticker on. We have <laughs> t-shirts, hoodies. All kinds of good stuff. Plus, every week, um, exclusive bonus content for you. Patreon.com slash if. so check it out. We appreciate it. Um, if you haven't subscribed on your podcast app, go ahead and just do that, too. That's totally free. Um, that just makes sure that your podcast app will automatically download the new episode for you every week, and you will be able to keep up with what's if. Um, Matt or Gabby, anything you'd like to plug this week? Anything coming up?
1: Yeah. Um. No, I'm looking forward to seeing my completed syllabi uh, for the fall. If anyone wants to do that for me, um, (laughs) I would be happy to take that on. But otherwise, no.
0: Wonderful. And let's remember, uh, check out Gerardo's book, by the way, uh, Calculating Brilliance, An Intellectual History of Mayan Astronomy at Chichen Itza. And that's from University... University of Arizona, is that correct?
3: University of Arizona Press.
0: That's University it. of Thank Arizona you. Press. Uh, Gerardo Aldana, A-L-D-A-N-A. Go ahead, Matt.
1: No, I was just going to say, it's a very cool book. If you're interested in astronomy, um, mm-hmm. the history of astronomy, you should definitely check it out. And particularly, it's, it's this, uh, we have so few books that look at astronomy as it's practiced outside the Western context that really think deeply about things like Gender and politics mm, and mm. religion um, in this historicized way. Right, it's not just a lot. So much of archaeoastronomy is just these math nerds sitting in their basement um, calculating out the the mathematical patterns um, without thinking about how it was actually done. Um, so this is just such a, a great way to look at what it the, the lived experience of astronomy in a different kind of cultural context right right
0: Gabby would you help Gerardo come up to speed on our our closing oracular ritual uh, that we do every week
2: so we have a ritual in which together in unison as we contemplate this vastly changed world dictated by the stars we cannot help but shout the name of the show all together in unison in slow-mo so if you'll (laughs) join me
1: what
0: what? Thank you, Gerarda. The book is Calculating Brilliance and so in Intellectual History of Mayan Astronomy at Chichen Itza. And a shout out to all our Mayan listeners past and present. Keep an eye on the calendar. You never know what's happening. And always, as they say in Close Encounters, watch the skies always good advice and that's been good this (laughs) it's been good morning in mesoamerica good morning mesoamerica thank you all for listening don't forget to support us on patreon if you're not already patreon.com slash what the if we'll see you next week